Hey, Deviants, we've been off for a week, but don't worry, we are back with plenty more action for you on this week's episode of Dark and Devious. Yes, hello, Deviants. Um, welcome back. Just wanted to give you a heads up. Sorry, we took a weak little hiatus there. Um, An unplanned vacation. Which was not a vacation, at least <laughs> not for me. Um, Miss Rona decided to knock on my door and I was down for the count. It was, it was rough. I've had my two shots and my booster and somehow this third time that I've had COVID was the absolute worst. I wish it upon no one. And um, yeah, now I'm just tired all the time, which is a symptom of long COVID, which I'm not excited about. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you are at least up and about and that you are on the mend and that you are at least coherent enough to... <laughs> get back to some normal activities yes yeah um i haven't been able to go about my daily life's uh schedule and you know i'm not contagious anymore so i can you know go out and about um let me tell you the amount of work that i had on my plate after taking a few days off from covid oh man i think that just added to my tiredness level it piles up quick no that's the thing is is you know, life doesn't stop just because you do. And when you come back, you're going to have to r- roll with it. And yeah, uh, unfortunately, that is not a great thing to be coming back to when you're trying to recover. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but I'm here. I made it. And I'm excited to bring a full-length episode to everyone today. That's right. It is your turn to deliver an exciting, horrifying tale, I'm sure. Oh, man. If if any of our listeners are in a good mood right now, let me tell you, I am here to destroy that. Um, (laughs) It is a a shit show today. Um, But before we get into that, uh, how are you, Chris? (laughs) Um, I'm doing all right. Uh, I have been continuing to settle in here. I'm really excited and a little nervous. Um, So the house that I am living in belongs to my grandma and she's been living with my aunt and she's coming for a visit tomorrow. So I'm excited and a little nervous because she hasn't seen any of the changes that I've made yet. And I'm, I just hope it goes over well. I'm sure it'll be fine. We're going to do a little picnic tomorrow on the, the new patio that uh, has been redone since she's uh, been staying at my aunt's. But so she's going to stay over for a night and oh, it's cute. my day off. And so we're going to do 
lunch together and she can stay in her old room for for a night and feel at home for a little bit and yeah so I'm excited and nervous for that um and as far as last week um that was that was pride here in the Twin Cities and kind of tried to keep it low-key I didn't do anything too crazy but I did get to march in the pride parade with uh with the Twin Cities Gay Men's Chorus which I sing with and had a great time getting my shoulders all sunburned despite the uh, sunscreen that I put on. So that was unfortunate. It wasn't too bad. I it only peeled a little bit. So I'll have a weird farmer's tan uh, from the tank top I was wearing. But everything went smoothly. We kept the energy up. It was a fun time. And uh, I'm very glad that everything went over well and now I can rest until next Pride. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, I always marched in the parade in Minneapolis Pride uh, with 3M. My husband was employed with them at the time and we always walked through. It's so much fun walking the parade. Um, so that was I'm glad that you got to experience that as well. I missed out on all my prides. (laughs) I was gone for Pflugerville pride. I had COVID for Round Rock pride. I left like two days before Minneapolis pride because if our listeners remember, I was in Minnesota for a wedding. Um, hmm. And Austin doesn't do their pride until August. Oh, and that sounds hot. Yes. And I... I don't understand why August. Um, I know it's because like, you know, there's Dallas and Houston and San Antonio. They all do their prides in June. So maybe that's why. But I'm like, you know, August is is statistically the hottest month in Texas. So it's like, if they want to do it on a different month, why don't they do it in like May? You know, that it's closer Ooh, yeah, be to the actual, first. Yeah, it, it, they'd be the first. And in May, it's actually like, closer to actual pride month and it's gonna be like a solid like 20 degrees cooler yeah uh i mean maybe pass that on uh put that in the suggestions box Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, or maybe they just really want to encourage people to wear as little clothing as possible i mean it's not pride without a lot of skin um (laughs) people are proud of more than just who they are (laughs) yes very much so um but they do the do the parade at night the parade doesn't start until 8 p.m okay now that i like Mm -hmm. but also i don't like because Something I've noticed here is like, you know, in Minnesota, the here we go talking about weather again because we're Midwestern <laughs> idiots. Um, in Minnesota and Illinois, where I grew up, you know, like one o'clock would be the peak of the heat, right? Mm-hmm. One, in between like one and two. Here, it doesn't top out until about 5 p.m. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm like, why don't you do the parade in the morning? Yeah. I mean, unless they're like, well, we know everyone's going to be hungover from the night before. Uh-uh. Eh, whatever. It is what it is, right? So I'll get... I can't to- please everybody. <laughs> I'll get to finally go to a Pride in August. 
my fingers are crossed for you that that will happen uh, my luck <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, other than personal news, we don't have much, uh, podcast news to share. Um, trying to get more listeners. We love the ones that we have, but I always get excited when we have a new country. We don't have a new country to report on today, but, um, hopefully soon. Right. I mean, we've gotten to a lot of countries, so it's, it's like now we're, we're, uh, waiting on the, the corners of the globe now. Exactly. We're still waiting on Antarctica. <laughs> exactly. Well, if that does it for personal news, should we go ahead and dive into your story? Did I, did I miss anything? Not that I know of. Okay, well, I'm really excited. It's been, I, I've been without a, a case to haunt me for the last week, so... I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be shook. All right. Well, I'm going to shake y'all up. Okay. So um, as mentioned earlier, if you're in a good mood, I am about to change that. <laughs> um, and I think I need to give a big trigger warning before I get into this episode. Um, this episode does involve the torture and abuse of a minor. And it also involves... Um, some sexual assault towards minors. Um, so if that is an issue for anyone, you have been warned, proceed at your own caution. Um, right, that can, that's, I mean, it's always difficult for anybody, but especially if anybody has a uh, personal connection to any kind of case like that, that's, mm-hmm. that'd be understandable if you needed to maybe have your finger on the, fast forward button just in case it gets too difficult yeah um but yeah so today i'm gonna be telling you a story that i heard about years ago um it's truly truly horrific and i'm gonna be telling you about the torture and murder of 16 year old sylvia likens oh now this name sounds familiar to me and i'll be interested to to hear the details okay um uh also it is also known as like i don't like it when they give like murderers or cases like kind of like cutesy names oh Um, yeah like like something that's buzzworthy like nicknames yeah Yeah, um you might have also heard of this case as the coca-cola bottle murder um and oh that's you'll see why that just puzzles me now you will you will see why okay okay so sylvia marie likens was a third of five children born to carnival workers lester likens and his wife elizabeth francis on january 3rd 1949 she was born between two sets of fraternal twins daniel and diana who were two years older than she was and then Benny and Jenny, one year younger. Okay, that sounds like almost a little cruel to name Benny and have, Jenny. Uh, have your uh, twins named with rhyming names, but I, that also seems like a very 1940s or 1950s thing to do. But could they have also been Benjamin and Jennifer? <laughs> that could that could be too. Uh, that that might be a little bit 
more tolerable. Jenny Lichen suffered from polio, causing one of her legs to be weaker than the other. She was afflicted with a notable limp and had to wear a steel brace on one of her legs. Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was unstable. They often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer, moving frequently, and regularly experiencing severe financial difficulties. The Lycan's sons regularly traveled with them in order to assist with their job, but um, Sylvia and Jenny were discouraged from doing the same out of concern for their safety and also to focus on their education. As a result- It's nice that they wanted them to focus on their education, mm -hmm. which seems kind of like that might've been rare or like maybe a little bit more rare at that time Yeah, since there was- there, I feel like there used to be a lot more focus on like, oh, well, the girls in the family just have to focus on getting far enough until they can marry a husband. You know? Right. Especially back then. Yeah. As a result of their parents traveling, Sylvia and Jenny frequently stayed with their relatives, uh, most frequently their grandmother. In her teenage years, Sylvia occasionally earned spending money by babysitting running errands, or performing ironing chores for friends and neighbors. And she often would give her mother part of her earnings. Oh, that is so, so sweet. Yeah, and she was described as a friendly, confident, and lively girl with long, wavy, light brown hair extending below her shoulders. And she was known by the nickname Cookie to her friends. Oh, that's adorable. Mm-hmm. Although exuberant, Sylvia always kept her mouth closed when smiling due to a missing front tooth, which she had lost while roughhousing with one of her brothers during a childhood game. Oh, no. I know. That's, that's such a bummer. But that's also, as far as stories go, like kind of the sweetest reason. Mm -hmm. yep. Like because you're playing with your sibling. Uh-huh. She was also fond of music, particularly the Beatles and was notably protective of her more timid and insecure younger sister, Jenny. On several occasions, the two would visit a local skating rink where Sylvia would help Jenny skate by holding her hand while Jenny skated on her unaffected leg. Wow, talk about determined, not like, not gonna let my, my uh, handicap get me down. Right. In June of 1965, Sylvia and Jenny Likens resided with their parents in Indianapolis, Indiana. On July 3rd, their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly thereafter, Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Benazuski, the mother of two girls with whom the sisters had recently become acquainted with at school, Paula and Stephanie Benazuski. The arrangement was made because the girls' parents and brothers were headed out of town to do carnival work. At the time of this boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester she would care for his daughters until his return as if they were her own children. So before we continue, we need to know who is Gertrude Banaszewski. I mean, Gertrude. so far, she sounds like a really nice lady. She sounds like a peach. Right? <laughs> Gertrude was the third of six children, and her family was working class. 
At the age of 16, she dropped out of high school to marry 18-year-old John Stefan Banasuski, with whom she had four children with. Although John had a violent temper and occasionally beat his wife, the two would remain together for 10 years prior to their first divorce. Uh, first divorce? How mm-hmm. many divorces with the same person is there? <laughs> You'll see. Okay. <laughs> Following her divorce, Gertrude married a man named Edward Guthrie. This marriage lasted just three months before the couple split. Shortly thereafter, she remarried her first husband, with whom she then had two more children. The couple divorced for a second time in 1963. Really makes you wonder how he uh, sweet-talked her into coming back the Mm -hmm. second time. And like two more kids, he must have done something to woo her. Abusers always have that sickening charm. That's, that's true. Sometimes it's really hard to get away or, or like stay away even after you've gotten away. Mm-hmm. Weeks after her third divorce, Gertrude began a relationship with a 22-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who also physically abused her. She had one child with Wright, Dennis Lee Wright Jr. Shortly after their birth of their son, Right, abandon Gertrude and all of her children. What a jerk. I mean, also, he was only 22. How how much older was she? Did it say how old she was? No, but I mean. But she was older than him, right? She definitely was older. Uh, I mean, she got married so quick and her first marriage was when she was 16. So, oh, wow. So she was basically like, she started her family really young. Yes, very much okay. so. But what a jerk. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. You have a child with this woman and you're just like, peace. I'm out of here. Yep. Well, I mean, so did the others. By 1965, Gertrude lived alone with her seven children. Children. (laughs) Paula, 17. Stephanie, 15. John, Jr., 12. Marie, 11. Shirley, 10. James, 8. And Dennis Lee Wright Jr. won. Holy cow. That, I don't know how you manage all of, all of that in such a, a, like a wide variety of ages. Uh Like you've got teenagers to toddler. Yes, exactly. Hopefully the teenagers were helping out with the younger ones. Yeah, I would hope. But then you're, it's like when you're a teenager, you're also like trying to be a teenager. Right, exactly. Although 36 years old and five feet, six inches tall, she weighed only a hundred pounds and was described as an underweight asthmatic chain smoker suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, failed relationships, and a recent miscarriage. Yikes. This, I mean, she sounds like a character out of something. I don't know what, (laughs) like this tiny asthmatic smoker with this massive family and like all the stress of the world on her. Uh Uh-huh, yes. In addition to the sporadic checks she received from her first husband, who added he was an abusive husband and also an Indianapolis policeman. Oh, how nice for him. Yes. Uh, She primarily relied uh, financially to support her children by performing odd jobs for neighbors and acquaintances, 
such as selling or cleaning. Shortly after the July 4th holiday, Sylvia and Jenny Likens moved into Gertrude's home at 3850 East New York Street, Indianapolis, in order for her father, their father and later their mother to travel to the East Coast with the carnival. With the understanding that Gertrude would receive weekly boarding fees of $20 to care for their daughters until they return to collect Sylvia and Jenny in November of that year. Which I mean, 20 extra dollars then back then. 1965. Yeah, was probably a big help. Yeah, especially with that many mouths to feed. Yeah, I mean, and were all of the kids like all of her kids at home at this point yes. too? Yes. Oh, wow. So this is a very crowded house. She has seven children. Now she's taking on two more. Yeah. Nine kids in a house. Uh, that sounds, that sounds like my nightmare. <laughs> Nine people, grown ass adults in a house. Sounds like my nightmare. <laughs> right. During the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided at Gertrude's home, the sisters were subjected to very little discipline. Sylvia regularly sang along to pop records with uh, Gertrude's daughter, Stephanie, and she willingly participated in housework. Both girls also regularly attended Sunday school with the Banaszewski children. So everything seems at least somewhat normal. Yeah. How, how come I feel like this is suddenly going to be not normal very soon and it's as you mentioned it is sudden yeah and i think this is the case that i'm thinking of and i if it is i actually almost considered doing this around mother's day (laughs) but i'm glad that you're covering it because uh it's one that i was like this looks really interesting and I want to know more. And, but then something else came up. So, Mm -hmm. so I'm glad we're getting to it now. So although Lester Likens had agreed to pay Gertrude $20 a week in exchange for the care of his daughters, after just two weeks, the payments failed to consistently arrive upon prearranged dates, occasionally arriving only one or two days late. In response, Gertrude began venting her frustration at this fact upon the sisters by beating their bare buttocks with various instruments, one being a fraternity-style paddle. As she would beat them, she would make statements such as, well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. Oh, so it's like, oh, cool. I'm not really doing this out of the goodness of my heart. Like the second I'm not getting paid on time, I just turned into a monster. Uh-huh. I mean, whatever happened to it takes a village, you know? Yeah, not everyone likes villages, Chris. <laughs> On one occasion in late August, both girls were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with the aforementioned wooden paddle. After Paula, Gertrude's eldest daughter, had accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper that they all had attended. By mid-August, Gertrude had begun to focus her abuse almost exclusively upon Sylvia, with her primary motivation being jealousy of her physical appearance, respectability, and potential in life. 
According to subsequent trial testimony later, this abuse was initially afflicted upon Sylvia after she and Jenny had returned home, uh, returned to the home residence from school, as well as on weekends. This initial abuse included subjecting Sylvia to beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled food out of the garbage can. On one occasion, Sylvia was accused of stealing candy that she'd actually purchased and was beaten as a result. Wow, it's like uh, there's literally nothing that she can do to like av avoid this abuse. Yeah, and as you'll see, it just gets it just gets insane. The the fact that like this girl could blink, and Gertrude would beat her. She would find a reason. Yeah, exactly. On another occasion in late August, Sylvia was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach, whom she had met in the spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. In response to hearing this, Gertrude asked if she had ever done anything with a boy, to which Sylvia, very innocent and unsure of her meaning, replied, I guess so, and explained that she had gone skating with boys there and had once gone to a park on the beach. Continuing the conversation with Stephanie, Gertrude's daughter, and Jenny, Sylvia mentioned that she had once laid under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, why did you do that? Which Sylvia replied, I don't know. Several days later, Gertrude returned to the subject, telling Sylvia that, you're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to be having a baby. Sylvia thought Gertrude was just kidding with her and said, yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. However, Gertrude- Which, Again, like cruel, like psychological torture there. Mm -hmm. However, Gertrude used this and then informed her and all the other girls in the house that whenever they did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked Sylvia in the genitals. Paula, the eldest daughter, who was three months pregnant and also jealous of Sylvia's physical appearance, then participated in attacking her, knocking her off her chair and onto the kitchen floor, shouting, you ain't sit to fit in a chair, you dumb whore. Wow. Yeah. On another occasion, as the family ate supper, Gertrude, Paula, and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Lepper force-fed Sylvia hot dogs overloaded with spicy condiments. Sylvia vomited as a result and was then forced to consume what she had regurgitated. This is just insanity. Like, what ever made them think of this sort of punishment? Uh-huh. And you'll see the punishments get worse and worse. And the people who are doing it will shock you. In what was Sylvia's only act of retaliation, she is alleged to have spread a rumor at school that Stephanie and Paula Banasowski were sex workers. She supposedly did this because she was upset with the household singling her out for similar accusations. While at school, Stephan Stephanie was jokingly propositioned by a boy who told her that Sylvie had started the rumor about her. 
Upon returning home that day, Stephanie questioned Sylvie about it, and she admitted to starting the rumor. Stephanie punched her in response, but after Sylvia apologized to her in tears, Stephanie also then began to cry. However, when Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Randolph Hubbard, heard the rumor, he brutally attacked Sylvia, slapping her, banging her head against the wall, and flipping her backwards onto the floor. When Gertrude this is a found- 15-year-old. Yes, a 15-year-old boy Ugh. beating up a 16-year-old girl. Yeah, this is a, a really bad, these are really bad uh, behaviors being learned really early. Yes. And I mean, obviously something in that boy's life told him that that was acceptable or that was okay or that was reasonable retaliation. It's like, but nobody was teaching conflict resolution not in <laughs> at the this 60s, time. Chris. When Gertrude found out the, about the rumor, Sylvia was again beaten, this time with the fraternity-style paddle. On yet another occasion, Paula beat Sylvia in the face with such force that she broke her own wrist. Ooh. And later, Paula used the cast on her wrist to further beat Sylvia. Gertrude repeatedly falsely accused Sylvia of promiscuity and engaging in sex, rantiness about the filthiness of sex work and women in general. Gertrude would later occasionally force Jenny to strike her own sister, beating Jenny if she did not comply. I'm amazed that none of these children had run away at this point. I know. It's a very tumultuous house. Mm -hmm. Coy Hubbard and several of his classmates frequently visited the Banaszewski residence to both physically and verbally torment Sylvia, often collaborating with the Banaszewski's children and Gertrude herself. With Gertrude's active encouragement, these neighborhood children routinely beat Sylvia, sometimes using her as a practice dummy in violent judo sessions lacerating her body, burning her skin with lit cigarettes in an excess of 100 times, and severely injuring her genitals. To entertain Gertrude and her teenage accomplices, Sylvia was forced at one point to strip naked in the family room and masturbate with a glass Coca-Cola bottle. This is just like beyond... Which I wouldn't even say masturbate. I would say forced self-sexual assault that 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 sounds about right this is just i like i had no idea it it got this bad it gets worse chris oh god and while gertrude forced sylvia to use the coca-cola bottle on herself she was telling little jenny that this is to prove to jenny that her sister was a whore and this was a kind of girl that Jenny should avoid. So Gertrude eventually forbade Sylvia from attending school after she confessed to having stolen a gym suit from the school due to Gertrude not washing her clothing and having refusing to purchase new clothing for her. For this act of theft, Gertrude whipped Sylvia with a three inch wide leather belt. She then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex before repeating, repeatedly kicking Sylvia in the genitals. 
Wow, a, like a girl where it sounds like she's never actually had premarital sex. Exactly. Like, I don't, I don't know why Gertrude was like so honed in on thinking that Sylvia was like this promiscuous girl, which for our listeners, if you're promiscuous, like whatever, do your own thing. I'm not shaming. But in the 60s, it was a very different time, a very different outlook on sexual behavior. So I don't know why. Was it because she was pretty that Gertrude just assumed? You know? It, it very much, I'm getting, um, oh, Kathy Bates' character from Misery. Yeah, like, yes. Or, or maybe like the mom from um, Carrie. Oh, like I'm getting yes, those yes, kind yes. of vibes from Gertrude that she's like a real life version of those characters where it's just like, any like sex is dirty like yes. any like that kind of stuff which unfortunately is still a problem and this is exactly why uh you know young people need like a proper sexual education because it sounds like she almost didn't even realize that like just laying under the covers with her boyfriend like that's you're not going to get pregnant from that exactly like, yeah. like that kind of naivety uh, is just, it's like, why, why has no one taught you properly about your body and what it, what it does? Mm-hmm. Like, this should not be information that's kept from you. Right. So following this premarital sex, uh, pro- not even discussion, probably shouting and Kicking Sylvia in the genitals, Gertrude then burned Sylvia's fingertips with matches before further whipping her. A few days later, Gertrude repeatedly whipped Jenny with the same belt after she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from the school to wear on her strong foot. The Lycan sisters were fearful of notifying either family members or adults at their school of the increasing incidents of abuse and neglect they were enduring as both were afraid that doing so would only worsen their situation. Jenny, in particular, struggled against the urge to notify family members as she had been threatened by Gertrude that she would herself be abused and tortured to the same degree as her sister if she did so. Jenny was also subjected to bullying by girls in her neighborhood, in addition to occasionally being ridiculed or beaten whenever she alluded to Sylvia's situation. Now, this part really like frustrates me. In July and August, both Lester and Elizabeth Likens would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters. The last occasion Lester and Elizabeth visited their daughters was on October 5th of 1965. On this occasion, neither girl exhibited any visible sign of distress about their mistreatment to their parents. This is likely because both were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. Wow. And I mean, imagine by that point, you've probably been so conditioned. Yes. To, you know, try to avoid the fallout of the physical abuse. Like you're, you've been just trained that like, I have to do absolutely everything possible so I will make it look like everything's fine if that means that I could be spared this physical abuse Mm -hmm. 
Almost immediately after Lester and Elizabeth left, Gertrude um, turned to face the girls and said, what will you do? What will you two do now? Now they're just gone and you're here with me. So that's just like further psychological torture. Yeah, where it's like, it's not even like punishment for things that she thinks is worthy of punishing them for. Now it's just like, oh, you're my you're my little toys that yes. I'm going to just, uh, you know, use and abuse however I see fit just because, you know, now I'm just mad. Yep. I'm mad because your dad pays me one day late. Which is so bizarre. It's like, there's gotta be something else that was just, uh, bubbling beneath this the surface and yeah. it makes me wonder if maybe all of the abuse that she had endured from her previous husbands if like okay finally I found someone weaker than me that I can take all of my rage out on right and and now and so I wonder how often that happens where well I mean we think about the the cycle of abuse where oftentimes, you know, um, parents who abuse their children were in turn abused by their parents. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of, it's like uh, an, a vicious cycle. Right. So maybe it's something like that. On one occasion in September, Sylvia and Jenny encountered their older sister, Diana, at a local park. Both Jenny and Sylvia informed Diana about the abuse they were enduring at the hands of Gertrude, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for physical abuse and almost always for things that she had neither said nor done. Neither sister mentioned the actual address where they resided, and initially Diana believed her sister must be exaggerating their claims regarding the scope of their mistreatment. But then at another meeting, when Sylvia and Jenny encountered Diana, while in the company of 11-year-old Marie Banaszewski, Sylvia had been given a sandwich to eat by Diana when she mentioned to her sister that she was hungry. Sylvia remained silent about the matter, although Marie revealed this fact to her mother. In response, Gertrude accused Sylvia of engaging, engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked and bludgeoned her. The pair then subjected Sylvia to a scalding bath in order to cleanse her of her sin, with Gertrude grabbing Sylvia's hair and repeatedly banging her head against the bath to revive her when she fainted from the heat. So that's Uh, her eating a sandwich. Wow, Uh, and because she was hungry and like no one else was probably feeding her. Right. Shortly after this incident, the father of a neighborhood boy at Arsenal Technical High School um, anonymously reported that a girl with open sores across her entire body was living at the Banaszewski house. As Sylvia had not attended school for several days, a school nurse visited the home to investigate these claims. Gertrude claimed to the nurse that Sylvia had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her actual whereabouts, adding that Sylvia was out of control and that her open sores were a result of Sylvia's refusal to maintain decent hygiene. 
oh yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Gertrude further claimed that Sylvie was a bad influence on both her own children and her sister Jenny. And the school made no further investigation. Oh, sure. Just take her word for it. Yep. The immediate neighbors of the Benazuski house initially viewed Gertrude as an ideal caregiver for the Lycan sisters, as they had visited the house on two occasions while the girls had been under Gertrude's care. However, on both occasions, they witnessed Paula physically abusing Sylvia, who on both occasions had a black eye, and openly boasting about her mistreatment of the child to them. Upon their second visit to the home, both observed Sylvia to appear extremely meek and somewhat zombified in nature. Nevertheless, they never reported the evident mistreatment to authorities. On October 1st, Jenny and Sylvia's oldest sister, Diana, discovered that her sisters were temporarily residing at Gertrude's home. She visited the property in an attempt to initiate regular contact. Gertrude, however, refused Diana entrance to her property stating that she had received permission from their parents not to allow either of the girls to see her. Uh, that sounds like BS. Like, oh yes, I have permission to keep you from seeing your sister. Right, right. From your parents who care enough about them to find what they think is a good place while they're away and also come visit them while they're busy working. Yeah. Gertrude then ordered Diana off her property Approximately two weeks later, Diana encountered Jenny, by chance, close to home and inquired to Sylvia's welfare. Jenny told her, I can't tell you or I'll get into big trouble. Due to the increase in the frequency and brutality of the torture Sylvia was subjected to, she gradually became incontinent. She was denied any access to the bathroom, being forced to wet herself. As a form of punishment for incontinence, on October 6th, Gertrude threw Sylvia into the basement and tied her up. There, Sylvia was often kept naked, rarely fed, and was frequently deprived of water. In the weeks prior to locking Sylvia in the basement, Gertrude had increasingly abused and tormented her. She would often falsely claim to the children in her house that she herself or one of them had been receiving direct insults from Sylvia in the hope that this would provoke one of her children to attacking her. Physical and mental torment would occasionally pause when the Benazuskis watched their favorite television show. Neighborhood children were also occasionally charged five cents a piece to see the display of Sylvia's body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and ultimately mutilate her. Uh, so are you... <laughs> That's what I mean, like when I said earlier. I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So neighborhood children paid to humiliate and further injure Sylvia. Not only, yeah, they paid to watch. They also paid to partake. That is so horrifying. Like the amount of control and manipulation that Gertrude has over these children is beyond my understanding. Yeah. And also the fact that other children had the capacity to be like oh this is something I would like to participate in and observe right that's that's so scary to me Mm -hmm. 
Throughout Sylvia's captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and the neighborhood children, restrained and gagged her before placing her in a bathtub filled with scalding water and proceeded to rub salt into her open wounds. Ah. On one occasion, Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., rubbed urine and feces from Gertrude's one-year-old son diaper into Sylvia's mouth before giving her a cup half-filled with water and stating the water was all she received for the remainder of the day. Ugh. On October... Like, these these horrors just don't even make any sense. It's not like there's any rhyme or reason. It's just as if she's trying to be as cruel as possible. Exactly. And getting other people to be as cruel as possible. Yeah, this is... This is true, truly evil. Mm-hmm. On October 22nd, John tormented Sylvia by offering to allow her to eat a bowl of soup with her fingers and then quickly took it away when Sylvia tried to eat it. And by this time, she was suffering from extreme malnourishment. Gertrude eventually allowed Sylvia to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to rest herself. However, out of extreme dehydration and desperation, Jenny snuck her a glass of water before falling asleep. The following morning, Gertrude discovered that Sylvia had wet the bed, and as a punishment, she was forced to once again insert an empty glass Coca-Cola bottle into her genitals and then banished back to the basement. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude shouted for Sylvia to return to the kitchen and then ordered her to strip naked before proclaiming to her that you have branded my daughters, now I'm going to brand you. She then heated a needle over the stove and began carving the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, onto Sylvia's stomach. When Gertrude wasn't able to finish this branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children, 14-year-old Richard Hobbs, to finish etching the words into Sylvia's flesh as she took Jenny to a nearby grocery store. In what Hobbs would later insist were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text into Sylvia's abdomen. Both he and the 10-year-old Shirley Banaszewski then led Sylvia into the basement where each proceeded to use an anchor bolt in an attempt to burn the letter S beneath Sylvia's left breast. Although they applied one section of the loop backwards and this deep burn scar would resemble the number three. So this is a 10 year old that's been taught that it's okay to treat a human this way. This is, uh, this is becoming a family of monsters. But I feel bad for the, all of what the children are doing are incredibly horrific. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for them because they're being conditioned to, to see this as being okay. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm thinking about like, well, what's going to happen to these kids someday? Like, these kids are going to grow up. And I, I don't know yet whether they are held responsible for their actions at all. But if, you know, when typically it seems like anything that occurs when uh, when you're still a minor, you tend to, to get a, 
a lighter punishment, I feel like. So it's like, my goodness, are these kids grown up today? And like, what kind of people are they? Or like, how do you have a life after this? We'll get to that. Okay. So Gertrude later taunted Sylvia by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved on her stomach. And that same day, Sylvia was forced to display the carving to neighborhood children, with Gertrude claiming that she received the inscription at a sex orgy party. The following day, Gertrude woke Sylvia and forced her to write a letter as she dictated the contents, which were intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away. The content of this letter was intended to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively abusing and mutilating Sylvia after she initially agreed to engage in sexual relations with them before they inflicted the extreme abuse and torture upon her. After Sylvia had written this letter, Gertrude finished formulating her plan to have John Jr. and her own sister Jenny blindfold Sylvia, take her to a nearby wooden area, and leave her there to die. On October 25th, Sylvia attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing the conversation between Gertrude and John Jr. pertaining to the plan to abandon her to die. She attempted to flee to the front door. However, due to her extensive injuries and general weakness, Gertrude caught her before she could escape the property. Sylvia was then given crackers to eat, but was unable to consume the food due to her extreme state of dehydration. Gertrude forced the crackers into her mouth before repeatedly striking her face with a curtain rod until sections of the rod were bent to right angles. Corey Hubbard, one of the neighborhood boys, then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and struck Sylvia one further time, rendering her unconscious. That evening, Sylvia desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the wall to the basement with a spade. One immediate neighbor would later inform police she heard desperate commotion and that she thought it might have been coming from the Banaszewski's home. But when the noise suddenly stopped at 3 a.m., she just simply decided not to inform police. God, if you hear something that sounds like a cry for help, even if it might be a false alarm, just have someone check it out. Like, she should have just reported it anyway. And if it ended up being nothing, then no harm, no foul. You were being careful. Right. But in this case, it was an absolutely horrific crime was being committed. And that's the fourth grown adult that heard something or saw something that chose not to do anything. Wow. By the morning of October 26th, Sylvie was unable to either speak intelligibly or correctly coordinate the movement of her limbs. Gertrude moved her into the kitchen and having propped her back against the wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. She threw Sylvia to the floor though, because when she was unable to correctly move the glass to her lips, Gertrude was frustrated. Uh, yeah, you're frustrated because you you knocked the sense out of her with a freaking curtain rod. Like mm -hmm. she has a brain injury because of you. Yep. 
And she's also been starved and beaten for the past months. Yeah. Shortly thereafter, Sylvia became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, she was unable to recite anything beyond the letter E or to raise herself off the ground. In response, Paula verbally threatened her to either stand up or she would inflict a long jump on her. That afternoon, several of Sylvia's other tormentors gathered in the basement. Sylvia jerkily moved her arms in an apparent attempt to point at the faces of the tormentors she could recognize, making statements such as, you're Ricky, you're Gertie, before Gertrude tersely shouted, shut up, you know who I am. Minutes later, Sylvie, Sylvia unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear that she had been given to eat, stating she could feel the looseness of her teeth. Mm. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. Sylvia had no recollection that she was even missing a tooth. Wow. Jenny was then forced to leave her ailing sister to go do gardening chores for Gertrude, for neighbors, in hopes that it would earn Gertrude some money. In a cruel attempt to wash Sylvia, John Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose. Sylvia again desperately attempted to exit the basement, but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this, Gertrude stamped upon her head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after this beating at 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs, a neighborhood boy, came to the Banaszewski residence and immediately proceeded to the basement. In the basement, he was confronted with the sight of Stephanie Banaszewski crying and cuddling Sylvia's emaciated and lacerated body after she'd been ordered by her mother to clean Sylvia. In a very late and a very small act of kindness, Stephanie and Richard then decided to give Sylvia a warm, soapy bath and dress her in new clothing. They then laid her upon a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered her final wish that her daddy was there and that Stephanie would take her home. When Stephanie realized that Sylvia was not breathing, she attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth recitation as Gertrude repeatedly shouted to the children in the house that Sylvie was faking her own death. Yeah, you can't hold your breath for that long. Right. And on October 26, Sylvia Likens, just 16 years old, finally succumbed to her injuries. Oh. And that's just so sad at the end that she just, she just wanted her dad. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just... It really burns me that those that those two kids, the neighborhood boy and the was it Stephanie? Uh-huh. Was, was there at the end? That like you knew that this crap was going on and it wasn't until it was way beyond probably even helping her mm-hmm. that then you finally show her some kindness and like right. some humanity. I mean, and- Stephanie had shown her kindness before. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the one that when she found out about the rumors being spread about her, she was an issue was angry with Sylvia, but when somebody started to cry, she then cried herself. Hmm. 
So I feel like Stephanie is like Stephanie and the one year old are like the two not monsters of this family. <laughs> um, so following Sylvia's passing, Gertrude beat her corpse with a book, shouting faker, faker, in order to rouse her. God, this just shows how absolutely like out of her gourd that she yes. is. However, she soon panicked and instructed Richard Hobbs to call police from a nearby payphone. When police arrived at her address at 6.30 p.m., Gertrude led the officers to Sylvia's extensively bludgeoned and mutilated body lying upon a soiled mattress. Before handing them the letter, she had forced Sylvia to write previously. She claimed that she had been doctoring Sylvia for over an hour or more to prior to her death, having applied rubbing alcohol to her wounds in a futile attempt at first aid before she had died. Makes me wonder if she bothered to like fake that, like mm-hmm. after she was dead, put like put rubbing alcohol on her. Mm-hmm. Because how would how great would that be if she got caught in that lie? Right, but also it's 65. I don't know how extensive they looked at cadavers. Gertrude added that Sylvia had earlier run away from her home with several teenage boys before returning to her house earlier that afternoon, bare-breasted and clutching the note. Clutching a Bible, Paula Bernazuski, having stated to all present in the household that Sylvia's death was, quote, meant to happen, then glanced in Jenny's direction and calmly stated, if you want to live with us, Jenny, We'll treat you like our own sister. As previously instructed by Gertrude, Jenny recited the rehearsed version of the events leading up to Sylvia's death to the police. However, so she was forced to, to give a false statement of her own sister's death. Yes. Ugh. But um, kudos to young Jenny's bravery because... She whispered in an officer's ear, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. Oh, yes. Take that chance, Jenny. So the formal statement provided by Jenny prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Jr. Banaszewski on suspicion of Sylvia's murder within hours of the discovery of her body. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. Especially for that time period. I would think that a, like a child's testimony would maybe not weigh as much just because of the times that they would also that, like look at Sylvia's body. Yeah. You know, like they're taking, they're taking that testimony in relation to the state of which Jen, uh, Sylvia was found. Yeah, and I imagine um, some of those injuries were probably could not be like, um, yeah, like, like you said, if you ran away earlier that day, like definitely some of them had been open for months. Yeah, or they, they'd set in for quite a while. And, and with how many people were aware of what was going on, uh, I've, I feel like someone would say something uh-huh. or, or it would get out. Right. The same day that Gertrude and her oldest children were arrested, 
Neighborhood boys Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were also taken into custody and charged with the same offenses. Wow. Again, I'm I'm shocked. <laughs> the three eldest Banaszewski children, plus Coy Hubbard, were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center. The younger Banaszewski children and Richard Hobbs were detained at the Indianapolis Children's Guardian's home. All were held without bail pending trial. Which can you imagine putting a one-year-old into a children's home without bail? Wait, so the, even the, the baby got put into? Yeah, it says, uh, yeah, from my research, it said all the younger. Huh, I'm, su- I'm surprised that it, they weren't given to like, uh, I don't know, like a child services type Well, they were situation. taken to Indianapolis Children's Guardian's home. Okay. So it sounds like it's a child service, but yeah. the fact that they like could not leave was- Yeah, crazy. that's that's weird. Like you have toddlers. <laughs> Initially, Gertrude denied any involvement in Sylvia's death. Although by October 27th, she confessed to having known that the kids, particularly her daughter Paula and Coy Hubbard, had physically and emotionally abused Sylvia, stating- Paula did most of the damage, and Coy Hubbard did a lot of the beating. Oh, how interesting that she's willing to throw the children under the bus. And her own children. Yeah. Not the neighborhood children, her own children. Gertrude further admitted to having forced Sylvia to sleep in the basement on only three occasions when she had wet the bed. But she became evasive when one officer stated the likely reason Sylvia had become incontinent were her mental distress and injury to her kidneys. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting to having repeatedly beaten Sylvia about the backside with her mother's belt, once breaking her wrist on Sylvia's jaw and inflicting other acts of brutality, including pushing her down the stairs and in the basement and inflicting a black eye. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion, and adding that most of the time he used his fists to abuse her. So I don't know why he's saying spanked as it's yeah doesn't doesn't make it any better. No, no. He also admitted to having burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions, adding that his mother had repeatedly burned Sylvia with cigarettes prior. Five other neighborhood children who participated in Sylvia's abuse, Michael Monroe, Randy Lepper, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, had also been arrested by October 29th. All were charged with causing injury to person and each was subsequently released into the custody of their parents under subpahina to appear as witnesses at the upcoming trial. The autopsy of Sylvia's body revealed that she had suffered an excess of 150 separate wounds across her body, in addition to being extremely emaciated at the time of her death. Her injuries included burns, severe bruising, and extensive muscle and nerve damage. Her vaginal cavity was almost swollen shut. Moreover, all of her fingernails were broken backwards and most of the external layers of skin upon her face, breast, neck, and right knee had been peeling or receded. Yeah, that's not something that you could explain from like, oh, she ran away earlier today. Right. 
In her death throes, she had evidently bitten entirely through her lips, partially severing sections of them from her face. Oh, which that just shows how much pain she was in. Yeah, that's horrifying. The official cause of Sylvia's death was listed as subdural hematoma due to her receiving a severe blow to her right temple. Both the shock she had primarily suffered due to the severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcutaneous tissues, plus a severe malnutrition were listed as contributory factors to her death. The funeral service for Sylvia Likens was conducted at the Russell and Hitch Funeral Home in Lebanon, Indiana on the afternoon, October 29th. The service was officiated by Reverend Lewis Gibson with more than 150 mourners in attendance. Her gray casket remained open throughout the ceremony with a portrait of her taken prior to July, 1965, adorning her coffin. In his eulogy, Reverend Gibson stated, we all have our time of passing, but we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life. The Reverend Gibson then strode towards her casket before adding, she has gone to eternity. Her headstone is inscribed with the words, our darling daughter, Sylvia, we love you and we'll miss you forever. Mm, that is like, couldn't say it any better. Like that's a, a sweet young life, just absolutely wasted because of this uh, really a psychopath's uh, cruelty. A broken woman who was determined that because she suffered in life, someone else had to suffer too. Mm-hmm. On December 30th of 1965, Marion County Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude Banaszewski and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Jr. They also in indicted Richard Hobbs and Corey Hubbard. Stephanie Banaszewski, the one that I said might be a good person earlier, Mm -hmm. waived her immunity for any potential impending prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering Sylvia. Wow, that's, I mean, so that's I feel like very she, useful testimony. And I feel like Stephanie, maybe, she, I feel like she was maybe just outnumbered. Mm -hmm. You know, there were so many other people in her home, in the community that were participating in this abuse and torture of Sylvia. And because she did show compassion a couple of times, maybe she always wanted to stand up. It's just she felt like if she did, she would be like Jenny. She'd be subjected to torture herself. Yeah, uh, I, that certainly does sound plausible. The trial of Gertrude Banaszewski and her children Paula and John Jr., Richard Hobbs, and Corey Hubbard all began on April 18, 1966. Interestingly, they were all tried together, like in the same courtroom at Indianapolis City County Building. I'm sure they were like, 
we don't want to hear these horrible gory details more than we have to that's, so let's yeah let's get true. it all over with in one go the attorneys for richard hobbs Corey hubbard paula and johnny jr claimed they had been pressured into participating in sylvia's torment abuse and tortured by gertrude Gertrude herself pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. However, multiple appointed psychiatrists and physicians all stated that she was mentally stable at the time of trial and leading up to Sylvia's death. On May 2nd and 3rd, Jenny Likens testified against all five defendants, stating that each had repeatedly and extensively both physically and emotionally, abused her sister, adding that Sylvia had done nothing to provoke the assaults and there had been no truth in either the rumors she had been falsely accused of spreading or the slurs each made against Sylvia's character. During her testimony, Jenny stated the abuse of her sister and, to a much lesser degree, herself, had endured began approximately two weeks after they began to live in Gertrude's home, and that as abuse of her sister was forced to endure escalated, Sylvie had occasionally been unable to produce tears due to her acute state of dehydration. Gosh, that's, that's horrifying that like you, your body can't even produce like the most mm-hmm. basic form of of, of like water because right. it, you just, it's not there. And like, as humans, we're like, what, like 75% water? Yeah. That's insane. Jenny burst into tears herself as she recalled how just days before Sylvia died, Sylvia said to her, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to. I can tell it. Sections of Jenny's testimony were later corroborated by neighborhood boy Randy Lepper, who said that he once witnessed Sylvia crying, but she had no actual tears. Leper also testified to having witnessed Stephanie strike Sylvia after her mother had ordered her to remove her clothes in his presence. But he then visibly smirked as he confessed to having himself beaten Sylvia on anywhere between 10 and 14 different instances. On May 10th, A Baptist minister named Roy Julian testified to having known a teenage girl was being abused in Gertrude's home. Although he did not report this information to authorities as having been informed by Gertrude that Sylvia had made advances to men for money. He believed the girl was being punished for solicitation. Oh my gosh, what a crappy human being. And he's a minister. Yeah, you're supposed to be a good guy. Oh my God. I mean, but are we surprised? We've seen so many other horrible things Mm -hmm. from, especially from this time period where people who were supposed to be trusted, upstanding members of society ended up secretly being, you know, abusers and yeah. Right. And whether or not she was being, physically punished for solicitation that's still child abuse it doesn't matter the reason why right and this is why the the 
like the old school version of punishment of like, oh, of like a physical beating is your punishment for doing a, like a so-called bad thing um, is, is just so harmful because like, how do you know like when someone is being punished or when someone is being like perennially abused? Right. That same day in court, 13-year-old Judy Duke also testified, admitting to a witness Sylvia once endured salt being rubbed into her sores until Sylvia screamed and passed out in pain. Like, uh, you have any idea how bad the pain has to be to, like, pass out from it? Like, that's... Also, like, Sylvia was starved. She didn't have much energy. How long can Mm -hmm. she stay conscious? Yeah. 13 year old Judy Duke also testified that she witnessed 10 year old Shirley Banaszewski rip open Sylvia's blouse and prick at her with needles, to which Richard Hobbs made the casual remark, Everyone's having fun with Sylvia. Gosh. The following day, Gertrude testified in her own defense. She denied any responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged abuse, torment, and ultimate death, claiming that her children and other children within the neighborhood must have committed the acts within her home, which she described as being such a madhouse with so many children that she didn't notice. Oh my gosh. So I guess I'm just a crappy mother. Right. She also added that she had been too preoccupied with her own ill health and depression to control her very own children. In response to questioning relating to whether she had physically abused the Lycan sisters, Gertrude claimed that although she had started to spank Sylvia on just one occasion, she was emotionally unable to finish doing so and had not hit any child on any further occasions. Wow, that sounds like a big pile of BS. Two days later, Richard Hobbs discussed how Gertrude ordered him to carve the words into Sylvia's abdomen and further testified that he had initially believed Sylvia would not be at the Benazuski household on October 26th, as Gertrude had informed him that she intended to, quote, get rid of Sylvia the day prior. When 10-year-old Marie Benazuski was called to the stand as a witness for the defense, she broke down and admitted that she had heated the needle in which Hobbs had used to brand Sylvia. Marie also testified as her mother's indifference to Sylvia's evident distress in relation to the physical and mental abuse she had increasingly suffered. With her mother's full knowledge, stating that on one occasion, Gertrude just simply sat upon a chair and crocheted as she watched neighborhood children attack Sylvia. That is an eerie image mm-hmm. to just to to picture. I mean, it's it's right up there with like a scene out of Psycho, you know. Yep. On May sixteenth, a court-appointed doctor testified on behalf of the prosecution. When questioned as to the exhaustive interviews and assessments he had conducted with Gertrude, he stated that she had been evasive and uncooperative. 
He testified that as to his belief, Gertrude was sane and fully in control of her actions, adding that she had been sane in October 1965 and remained sane to that date. The trial of the five defendants lasted 17 days before the jury retired to consider its verdict. On May 19, 1966, after, after deliberating for eight hours, the panel found Gertrude Banaszewski guilty on first-degree murder, recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula Banaszewski was found guilty of second-degree murder, and Hobbs, Hubbard, and John Jr. were found guilty of manslaughter. Upon hearing, Judge Rabb pronounced the verdicts. Gertrude and her children burst into tears and intended to console each other as Hobbs and Hubbard remained in stoic state. On May 25th, Gertrude and Paula Banaszewski were formally sentenced to life imprisonment. The same day, Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and John Jr. each received sentences of two to 21 years to be to be served at the Indiana Reformatory. In September of 1970, the Indiana Supreme Court reversed the convictions of Gertrude and Paula on the basis that Judge Sal Isaac Rabb had denied repeatedly submitted motions by the defense counsel at their original trial for both a change of venue and separate trials. Ugh. That's annoying that that it gets reversed on a technicality like that you're gonna get so, more annoyed chris oh no the pair were retried in 1971 on this occasion paula benazuski opted to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter rather than face a retrial she was sentenced to a severe to serve a term of between two and 20 years for her part in Sylvia's abuse and death. Despite twice unsuccessfully having attempted to escape from prison, <laughs> she was released in December of 1972. Oh, wow. So that, did you say the trial was that second It was second in 66, trial? the first trial. The second trial was in 71, and she was released one year later. Ugh. Gertrude's fair, especially after trying to escape. Right, twice. Yeah. Gertrude, however, was again convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Over the course of the following 14 years, Gertrude Banaszewski became known as a model prisoner at the Indiana Women's Prison. She worked in the prison's sewing shop. It was known as a dem mother to younger female inmates, which to me, that's just like, that's just so horrific. You know, she yeah, was, it's like she was someone... expected to take care of a young, a pair of young sisters and she abused them and ultimately murdered one. But then in prison, like she's willing to take these other young girls under her wing and care for them. It's it's very weird. Like what, like what was different about the first situation that made her right <clears throat> murderous, and then now that she's behind bars, she's a model person, right? 
it's, it makes me think like, okay, maybe she's exactly where she's supposed to be hmm. behind bars. Oh, at that time, yes. Yeah. By 1985, Gertrude changed her name to Nadine Van Frossen and described herself as a devout and reformed Christian. Hmm. However, 1985, she was up for parole. Oh boy. News of Gertrude's impending parole hearing created an uproar throughout Indiana. Jenny Likens and other immediate family members of Sylvia protested against any prospect of her release. The members of two anti-crime groups also traveled to Indiana to oppose Gertrude's potential parole and to publicly support the Likens family. Over the course of two months, the groups collected over 40,000 signatures from citizens of Indiana. All signatures gathered demanded that Gertrude remain incarcerated for the remainder of her life. During her parole hearing, Gertrude stated her wish was that Sylvia's death could be undone. Although she minimized her responsibility for any of her actions, stating, I'm not sure what, what role I had in her death because <laughs> I was on drugs and severely depressed. I don't I think really... that's what drugs do to you, right. usually. She's further stated that she never really knew Sylvia because she was in such a delusional state, but she does take full responsibility of what happened to her. I mean, it's a step in the right direction, but like, I, I feel like you're still not taking full responsibility for your actual like physical hand in her and right. in, in her demise. So I would be like, mm -mm, no, you got some more thinking and some more reflecting to do behind bars. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, despite all the public outcry, Gertrude was paroled in 1985. Oh my gosh. So she gets to like go out and like live a life. Right. Something exactly. that, that she deprived Sylvia of. Yep. Following her 1985 release from prison, Gertrude relocated to Iowa. She never accepted full responsibility for Sylvia's prolonged torment and death, insisting again that she was unable to precisely recall any of her actions in the months of Sylvia's prolonged and increasing abuse and torment within her home. She primarily blamed her actions upon the medication she had been prescribed to treat her asthma. I don't think that's one of the side effects. No, not for asthma. Yeah. Like, asthma medication doesn't make you a psycho. No, not at all. Gertrude lived in relative obscurity in Laurel, Iowa, until her death due to lung cancer on June 16th, 1990, at the age of 61. After her 1972 parole... Paula Banaszewski assumed a new identity. She worked as an aide to a school counselor at an elementary school for 14 years in Conrad, Iowa, having changed her name to Paula Pace. However, she was fired in 2012 when the school discovered her true identity. 
Yeah, that's kind of scary. Yes. She reportedly lives in a small town in Iowa, and she's married and has two children. Stephanie Banaszewski assumed a new name and became a school teacher. She later married and has several children and currently lives in Florida. Shortly after their mother's arrest, the Marion County Department of Public Welfare placed Marie, Shirley, and James Jr. in the care of separate foster families. The surname of all three children was legally changed to Blake in the 1960s after their father regained their custody. Marie later married. She died of natural causes in June 8th of 2017. Dennis Lee Wright Jr. was later adopted. His adopted mother named him Denny Lee White, and he died on February 5th, 2012. And I have cannot find any information on Shirley. Richard Hobbs, Corey Hubbard, and John Jr. So John Jr. was one of Gertrude's children, Richard and Coy were neighborhood boys. For their part in Sylvia's torture and murder only served less than two years in the Indiana Reformatory before being granted parole February 27th of 1968. Richard Hobbs died of lung cancer on January 2nd, 1972 at the age of 21. And oh, that's surprising. So young. Uh-huh. I mean, none of them lived past 70, which I'm not mad about. Like, I don't wish people to be dead, but if you're going to do these terrible things, I'm also not, like, rooting for you. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. I've, nobody's rooting for the bad guys here. Right. And then Coy Hubbard, following his release in 1968, remained in Indiana, did not change his name. Wow. Throughout, throughout his adult life, he was Im repeatedly imprisoned for various criminal offenses. He died of a heart attack in Shelbyville, Indiana on June 23rd, 2007 at the age of 56. John Jr. lived in obscurity under the alias John Blake. He became a lay minister, frequently hosting counseling sessions for children of divorced parents. Several decades after his release, he issued a statement in which he acknowledged the fact that he and his co-defendants should have been sentenced to more severe term of punishment. Wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I feel like he was one that actually like turned a new leaf. Yeah. He added that young criminals are not beyond rehabilitation and described how he had become a productive citizen. He died of diabetes in 2005 at the age of 52. Wow. Jenny Likens, Sylvia's younger sister, she married an Indianapolis neighbor, native named Leonard Wade. The couple had two children, and although that she remained traumatized by the abuse she had been forced to watch her sister endure, she's an advocate for child neglect and abuse. For the remainder of her life, Jenny was dependent upon anxiety medication. And unfortunately, she died of a heart attack on June 23rd, 2004, at the young age of 54. 14 years before her death, Jenny had viewed Gertrude's obituary in a newspaper. 
She clipped the section from the newspaper and mailed it to her mother with an accompanying note reading, some good news can come about in this world. Damn old Gertrude died, and I'm happy about that. Elizabeth, I do not blame her for that, no. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth and Lester Likens died in 1998 and 2013, respectively. In the years prior to their own death, Jenny Likens repeatedly emphasized no blame should be placed upon either of her parents for placing she and Sylvia in the care of Gertrude, stating all her parents had done was trust Gertrude under a false promise that they would be safe. The house at 3850 East New York Street, in which Sylvia was tortured and murdered, stood vacant for many years after her death. The property gradually became dilapidated, and although discussions were held about the possibility of purchasing and rebuilding the house and converting it into a woman's shelter, the necessary funds to complete this project were never raised. The house itself was demolished on April 23, 2009. Probably for the best, because that would have been haunted AF. But also, like, if they would have redone that space into, like, a women's shelter, that would have been, like, a really beautiful memorial to Sylvia. That's true. I would have, I would like to see, you know, maybe it, did, uh, it wouldn't even necessarily have to be on that spot. But like maybe somewhere in the town, if there was like a memorial shelter yeah. that had so that was like dedicated to Sylvia, would be a nice way to um, kind of close that and like kind of solidify her like her place in history, kind of like to continually do good. Mm-hmm. Which segues in. To that, in June 2001, a six-foot-tall granite memorial was dedicated to Sylvia Likens' life and legacy in Willard Park, Indianapolis. This dedication was attended by several hundreds of people, including members of the Likens family. The memorial itself is inscribed with the words, this memorial is a memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. Sylvia Likens' death is credited with the adoption of Indiana's mandated reporter law. The law states that this should a member of public suspect a child is suffering from abuse or neglect, that citizen suspecting this abuse has a legal obligation to report the abuse to authorities. On October 26, 2015, numerous Indianapolis citizens, including Sylvia's older sister, Diana, gathered in Lebanon, Indiana, to honor Sylvia and to reflect upon her life upon the 50th anniversary of her death and to honor all children who lost their lives to child abuse. The Sylvia's Child Advocate Center is officially dedicated to the memory of Sylvia Likens. Founded in 2010 in Lebanon, Indiana, and initially named the Boone County Child Advocate Center, the nonprofit organization was renamed in Sylvia's honor in 2016 with the executive director stating, 
the most important thing that we can do is tell kids who are hurt that we are listening and that something no one did for young Sylvia. Her family is thankful, though, because it doesn't have to be that way anymore. She did not die in vain. She died a horrific death, but because of that, we're hoping another child can be saved. That is a great legacy to have. Mm -hmm. And like, I hope that lots and lots of kids have been and will continue to be saved. Yes. By the the ripple effects of Sylvia's life. Mm -hmm. So Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center was formed with the objective to assist child victims of abuse and neglect. And professionals at the center work in um, concert with both law enforcement and the local department of child services. Because staff also include forensic interviews and provide assistance with legal procedures as well as mental or mental and medical health, which were both things that Sylvia desperately needed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is the extremely horrific and brutal case of Sylvia Likens in Indiana that I hate that Sylvia went through that, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad that there's so many resources in place now because of her. Right. You know, and she did not die in vain, you know, her death brought such great resources for the youth of today. Mm -hmm. And wow. I mean, she had to experience the mother from hell, you know, even though it wasn't her own mother. But that it it is just an out of this world, like crazy story. And I'm glad I got to hear all the details today because uh, that story has some weird twists and turns to it. Uh, and now we have the full story. Right. The thing that got me about the story is like, yes, there are, which I'm not going to like put anyone's experience on a level of how bad they experienced it. Um, Because, you know, obviously someone who has an abusive biological parent can go through just as much pain and torture. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not going to negotiate, like say like one person is worse than the other because we don't know what individual circumstances. Mm-hmm. But the thing that gets to me is that there were eight, nine, 10 year olds participating in this. Like what is the psychology there? What is the amount of control that Gertrude had over yeah, the neighbor- at- neighborhood? Not even just her kids. Like you, I do, I definitely do not want to believe that that these children just naturally had this cruelty in them, right? Because I like that can't be. I mean, unless there's something super crazy in the water in this neighborhood, like I just don't believe that these kids could have just existed with this. N- cruelty in them naturally so you're right I, I like 
there had to have been some influence there and mm-hmm. the like almost like getting permission from an adult that it's okay to be this cruel right and yeah i just really hope that everybody involved who did go on to like live a, like a life outside after their encounter with um gertrude that i hope that they broke the cycle like i hope that they didn't go on to become abusive parents and you know keep doing the same thing i mean as we saw though they all died youngish like no one lived above 70 which is that karma yeah it makes me wonder i mean and also hard living you know after some of them had served time in prison and then sometimes in some instances came back yeah. for other things. Yeah. Um, that's usually not a sign of a real great stable life. I mean, these things do affect your whole, the whole outcome of the rest of your life. It's not like you just get out of prison and get to go back to living a normal life. Like, right. It's going to be, it's going to be hard when you get out. So, but wow, thank you so much for telling that story. That was a ton of information. And this might be your longest one. It is a long one. And that's, I didn't want to tell the details, but at the same time I had to. Yeah. Because her experience is nothing to be overlooked or given a spark of version like Sylvia truly suffered and her story needs to be heard yes all right well now that i got you down for the evening (laughs) um if y'all want to see a picture of honestly sylvia so she's so cute um if you want to see a picture of sylvia check us out on instagram and facebook at dark and devious podcast um, if you yourself want to hear a story that fascinates you, email us at podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for coming back. We apologize for the delay. <laughs> Hopefully Mr. Well, well, and, and this was, this was like a supersized episode. So hopefully that makes up for a little bit. Yes. Yes. Hopefully. And until next time. Mm-hmm. Bye.